watching or listening online. It's good to have you be a part of worship today. And you're joining us for part two of a series entitled How to Have Lasting Happiness. And I realize that uh, that title alone may seem like a little bit of a cruel joke because for a lot of people you've sought that for a long time in life only to find that it's something that you couldn't hold on to. And the good news is we really can live with a real lasting sense of joy and happiness. But uh, along the way, we can get caught up in a lot of other traps. And one of them that I have found that I've spent a lot of my life in, and you can probably identify with as well, and that is the trap of when and then thinking. You know what that looks like, don't you? The, the mindset of when this happens, then I'll be happy. You know, when, when I get married, then I can be happy. When I graduate, finally get done with school, then I can be happy. When I get a job, when I own a house, then I can be happy. When I lose all this weight and I'm skinny, then I can be happy. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you have been guilty of just living with when and then thinking? You know the problem with that, don't you? There's always another when. It's like, well, yeah, I, I got that. But now there, there's this other stuff that, that's come up that I need for that to happen too. And then I can be happy. You never get to the then, do you? Or, or it doesn't last for very long. You, you graduate and you get a job and then the job's not that great. And then you need another job or you lose the weight and it comes back on you. I mean, there, there's always something else to be the then. There's always things to rob us of real lasting happiness if it's based on that kind of thinking. And when we started last week, we... We were talking about, we opened up by talking about just some of the basic laws of happiness. And we talked about some basic things to understand that, for one, happiness isn't something that, um, that needs to be the primary goal in life. In fact, if you make that your, your chief pursuit, then you'll never get there because it's, that's really kind of a self-centered goal. That happiness is the byproduct of right thinking, right choices, right uh, living. And uh, just, just some basic things like that that we need to understand, that it is going to be a choice. You're going to be as happy as you choose to be. And that if happiness is based on circumstances, that's always going to be a fleeting sense of happiness. But happiness that's based on good habits has the power to stay. And so what we're doing is we're looking at the book of Philippians, which is absolutely the happiest book in the Bible. And it's going to be a fun series. I hope you'll stick around. I know in the summer we travel. Folks are out and about a lot. I hope if you have to you know, go online to, to access some of these that you'll track with us through this because it's really solid truth for finding lasting happiness. And, uh, and what we're going to see in this book is that Paul is willing to tackle some of the real enemies of happiness, and, and we're all dealing with stuff that tends to rob us of real joy and happiness. And I'll, I'll start today by just pointing out four of the obvious things that can steal our happiness, and then we're going to talk about how Paul really worked through those. And, and, of course, you know, there are things like pain. It's hard to be in pain and experience happiness while you're hurting. And um, people, boy, they can be real robbers of happiness, can't they? You, you've probably got some people in your life who feel like they just sort of suck the joy out of your life. And um, just pressures from the inside or the outside can do that. And we just say problems in general, problems in your marriage, problems in a relationship, problems with your finances, your job, problems can do it. Wouldn't you agree all four of those can do the trick? When, when you're physically hurting or you're hurting because of a relationship issue or just any of these things can steal your joy. Well, Paul writes us this letter, the book of Philippians, when he's in the midst of uh, a really difficult set of circumstances, people and problems that are just mounting. And yet it, this is a real personal letter where he is just bubbling over with joy and happiness. 
And in this letter, it's not a letter that's written to say, here's a how-to on how to find lasting happiness. But along the way, you discover some things about Paul that you just go, wow, he had some real habits in his life that let him just live a life that just, in spite of all the junk that happened, let him be really carefree. And, and so today we're going to look at a, at a section that, that I'm entitling, uh, How to Be Happy No Matter What Happens. So this is going to be one that's going to tackle when the pain and the people and the problems and the pressure are mounting up. How do you just still have a life where you're like Paul or this guy's just going, I just can't contain myself. God is good and life is good in spite of all of this other joke. How do you get that? I mean, do you have to like, you know, snort something to, to get that? I mean, do you just have to lose your mind to get? No, Paul didn't have those problems. He, he had a lot of other stuff going on and he had this overwhelming sense of joy. And if you weren't here last week, I want to just remind you uh, of the setting for this letter because it has so much more power when you understand this. And what we're about to read today will mean more if you know this. And if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Philippians, if you will, Philippians chapter one, we're going to pick up in verse 12. But before we read that so that it makes more sense, let me remind you, Paul is writing back to a church in Macedonia, the church at Philippi, that when he had established the church, he had a really rough time there. The people, uh, a few of them welcomed him warmly. Those who ended up coming to faith in Christ were really, you know, became good friends of his. But that was a small number. And he had a short stay there because uh, the authorities and the Jews, they got mad and they did what they usually would do. They gave him all kinds of trouble. But, I mean, they ended up arresting him, stripping him bare in public, and they just beat the daylights out of him. They locked him up, and then when they let him out, uh, the leaders of the town asked him to leave town. So it's just a really rough experience there. But over time, the Philippians who had come to faith in Christ had really grown solid roots, and, and they had matured, and they stayed in touch with Paul. And they would send financial support for Paul and his missionary journeys, and even while he was in prison. And they had uh, just they had sent uh, some people as encouragement along the way to be a help to Paul. And he was so grateful for this. And so this is his thank you letter and a, a word of encouragement back to them. And so in the intervening time, some years have passed now. Four years prior to Paul writing this letter, he has gone back to the Holy Land. It's at, at the end of his third missionary journey. And he's not doing anything noteworthy on this particular day. He's just gone to the temple to worship. Remember, Paul is Jewish. He's a fulfilled Jew. He's a follower of Jesus. But the temple and, and the law is still important to him. And he's gone to the temple. He's not preaching. He's not making a big scene. But on this particular day, some of the troublemakers who are wanting to snuff out Paul's life, they essentially want to do with him what was done with Jesus. They just want to... He's come to Jerusalem, and it's the heart of all the Jewish activity, religious activity. And they're just going to take him out. And so, just in the middle of him worshiping one day, a mob just overtakes him, and it, it's just, it's a mess. And they, I mean, short of God intervening, they probably would have just killed him right there on the spot, because that was their intention, had it not been for the Roman authorities that soldiers intervened. And it was just kind of like a scene where, you know, like in a bar fight, and the police show up, and they don't know who started it, and so it's just like, who's in the middle of the fray? We're going to haul them out and arrest them until we can figure out what was really going on here. And so it was that kind of thing. Well, everybody's, you know, wanting to fight Paul, and so we're going to arrest Paul, though we have no idea what's going on or what he's done. And so that's what they do. They carry him away and lock him up, and in the, the hours immediately after he's locked up, the Jews get together, and they're like, okay, here's the deal. They're going to have to transport him from where he's locked up to another place, and when they do... When they pass through this remote area, we've got a, a large group of us. We're going to attack. There's probably going to be just a little handful of soldiers carrying him. And, and those Romans, 
they're not going to want to you know, really fight to protect him, and so they're probably going to let us have our way. We're going to kill him. We're going to do whatever we have to do to the Romans. We're going to kill him. And God intervenes and, and lets word of that spread, and so they end up sending a big detachment of soldiers to protect Paul and to get him to Caesarea. And basically, when he gets to Caesarea, he just has to sit in prison for two years waiting. Now, he's sharing Christ with every ruler and every leader that comes along who wants to hear his story, but essentially he's just sitting in prison for two years awaiting some kind of trial date. And along the way, he finally winds up having to make an appeal to Caesar, so he gets shipped to Rome, which is way harder than it sounds. He literally has to be shipped to Rome. And the, the journey, if you haven't read this in a while, I want to tell you, some of the, the wildest reading in the New Testament, in the latter part of the book of Acts, it tells the story of Paul sailing to Rome as a, as a prisoner. And along the way, early on in the journey, you know, they don't have any satellites to know what's coming, and they run into a full-blown hurricane. And the, the ship just gets completely sucked into the middle of the hurricane, and they spend 14 days and nights in the heart of that hurricane. I mean, it's such a harrowing experience. And Luke gives us a really detailed account of what it was like and how, I mean, all of the sailed, sailors and, and everybody on board, they just... Everybody but Paul completely loses hope. You know, they, they've thrown all the cargo and everything overboard. They've just done the most extreme stuff to try and save the boat, and, and it's just it's impossible. And for two weeks, as the hurricane moves through the Mediterranean, it just carries the ship with it until finally it, it strikes a, a sandbar, and the waves just destroy the ship. And all of the folks on the ship, including Paul, they have to grab drift, you know, pieces of the ship, driftwood and all, and they, they're able to swim ashore. And as soon as they get there, they're exhausted and, and hungry from two weeks of all of this. And they get there and they're trying to build a fire to warm themselves up. And the first thing that happens is in the building of the fire, Paul accidentally reaches in and grabs hold of something and a venomous, a poisonous snake bites him. And so it's just like from one hardship to another and all the people of the island think he must be somebody that's really bad. He's a prisoner and he's bitten by a snake and so the gods must hate him. I mean, it's just at every turn you're going, Wow. Can it get any worse for this guy? You know, truly snake-bitten. You know, it takes him three more months. They finally get to Rome, and now he's been in Rome for two years. Not as a guest, as a royal prisoner. Now, he's not in a big dungeon. He's actually in a private place where he alone lives, but he, he's literally in chains day and night. 24 hours a day, he is chained to one of the royal guard. They change out who, who he's chained to every four hours. No privacy Six different people per day shackled to Paul. That's the life that he's living. And so that's the backdrop that we have as we pick up this letter that Paul is writing now, four years into his imprisonment, where he says in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's a shocker. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers 
and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus <clears throat> will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him since you were going through the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. In this warm uh, personal note, we get some real important truths about how to, to stay happy no matter what is going on. Now, if there's one key verse for what we're going to talk about today, it's verse 27, where he says, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Whatever happens. All of the whatevers that happen in your life, all of the, the pains, the people, the problems, and the pressures, whatever comes your way, how to have the same kind of joy and happiness that Paul had. And so we're going to talk about four different habits to build in, four different things that if you'll do this, it's going to give real staying power to the joy in your life. And the first one is this, no matter what happens, I can be happy if I look at my problem from God's viewpoint. It really boils down to this. People with lasting happiness have a bigger perspective. They have a broader viewpoint. Because when you're in the middle of a really tough circumstance, What's our natural tendency? It's for our view to do this, isn't it? And it's like, all I can see is this problem. All I can see is this financial hole that I've gotten into. All I can see is all the difficulty in this relationship. All I can see is this health crisis. I can't see anything but the problem. And people who have a lasting sense of happiness are able to take a big step back and to see, you know what, in the grand scheme of things... You know, right now, yes, this seems so terrible, but in the grand scheme of things, I just realized, like so many things from the past, this is going to be an opportunity for God to do what God does. God's going to have a plan for working this out and for bringing good out of this, and God's just going to still accomplish what God always accomplishes. Now, the reverse of that is... What we tend to do, and that is to go, oh my goodness, I don't see how in the world I can fix this. I don't see how I can get past this. It's not getting any better. I think it's getting worse, and it's probably just going to continue to get worse. And so now I don't have any joy, and I'm, I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling all this going on. Why? Because I'm just so dialed into this one thing. Here's the truth. If you'll believe this truth, it'll help you to just step back Take a breath and not be so stressed out. The truth is this. God is working out His plan in your life. 
If you love Jesus and your life is surrendered to Him, I promise you, God is working out His plan. And His plan takes into account your problems. Here's the really cool thing in that. It takes into account my failures. It takes into account my wrong choices. It takes into account my sins. It even takes into account the stupid stuff that other people have done to me and have done to you that wasn't even the will of God. And God goes, yeah, and I saw that coming and I'm so good. I'm so in control. I'll even take your failures and the junk that they did to you and I'll work that as a part of the plan. That's why Romans 8.28 is such good news when it says God works all things together for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. That you can go, you know what, I do love Jesus and I'm seeking to live for Jesus. So there's a lot of bad junk that happened to me. And I even made some really rotten choices. I helped to make some of the problems that I have. And some of the people who are problems in my life, I helped to make them into problems. But guess what? God is so good. He's still working out a good plan that takes into account even my stupid stuff. Isn't that good news? just takes a little bit bigger perspective. That is really, really good news. Here's how Paul put it. He said, and I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, everything, say it with me, everything, everything that has happened to me has helped to spread the good news. Really? Yep. Everything. Now, here's what I want you to know about Paul. Paul had a dream in life of something that he had not been able to do before. How many of you have got dreams that have yet to be fulfilled in your life? There's some stuff that you've dreamed about and it hadn't happened yet. I'm right there with you. Some of what I've dreamed has happened and some of it has not. Paul had one that had not been fulfilled and he shares that in some of his writings. Paul's big dream was that he would get to do what he had done in so many other places, but that he would get to go to Rome to do it. Rome was the center of the universe in, in the ancient world. It was the heart of the empire. It was the seat of power. It was where the movers and shakers lived. And Paul had just dreamed to one day go to Rome. You know, you can only imagine, you know, where did Paul's thoughts go when he thought of going to Rome? You know, maybe I'm going to get to lead Caesar to Christ. Maybe I can rent the Colosseum and have a big meeting. I don't know what he, what he dreamed of when he would go to Rome. But it was going to be good stuff when he got to go to Rome. His dream to go to Rome. Okay, God had a big surprise for Paul. Guess what, Paul? Your dream for so long has been to go to Rome and preach to thousands. Here's the surprise. You get to go to Rome and you get to preach and you get to preach to thousands. But there is a twist. You're going to go to Rome in chains and you are going to preach to thousands one person at a time. In two years, in four hour shifts, 4,380 guards had been chained to Paul. And he got to preach to every one of them. He had a captive audience, let me tell you. When the sermon ran long, he never had to worry that they were going to cut out in the second hour. They were changed to him. Paul wasn't the one in bondage, the soldiers were. It's truly how God worked this thing out. Now we may look at that and go, come on, are you telling me that was God's way of fulfilling the desire in God's heart? Oh, that's exactly what I'm telling you. We may look at that and go, well, that was a cruel plan. I feel like that's how God works in my life. I want to do this. And God goes, surprise! Here's the version of that that you get. Well, you know what? On the surface of it, we might go, well, that's a stinky plan. 
He's in chains the first two years that he's there. Yeah, but let me tell you the results of that. Some of the results that we know, we find out a little bit later on in the letter that because of Paul being chained, not just to any old soldiers, he's chained to the palace guard. Every soldier chained to Paul because he is a prisoner of Caesar. He's not just general rubble. He, he is a part of, of a select group of prisoners that he's actually chained to the inner circle of the, the palace guard. And we go on to find out that part of Caesar's household come to faith in Christ. Part of Caesar's family gets saved. By the way, any historians in the room remember who was Caesar at this point in time? I'll give you a hint. His name rhymed with zero. Nero was the Roman emperor at the time. That's as bad as it gets right there. This guy, wow, the stuff that he did to Christians. And Paul is awaiting his opportunity to ever go before Nero. I mean, like that's your hope for release is to go before Nero and to make your appeal as a follower of Christ? Well, that's, that's where Paul is living. And we find out that as he gets to preach day after day to six different members of the palace guard, that you know, they're walking away going, wow, you're not going to believe who I guarded today and what, what he had to say. And they're sharing his message as they go out and it makes it to the inner circle. The, I mean, the gospel goes so far up into the, the, those in authority in Rome. But the other thing that happens is Paul, who is a busybody. I'm, you know, if they had had ADD diagnosed in the first century, Paul probably would have had it because he's one of those busy kind of people going all the time. And Paul slowed down enough to wind up pinning a bunch of the letters of the New Testament. I think that was pretty significant. <laughs> you and I are, are impacted because God slowed Paul down for these two years that he was in Rome to take time to write these letters that made such a difference. Paul basically said, look, here's what I, I can say about all of this, and that is these problems that have come along that I didn't ask for, they just helped to accomplish the goal. It wasn't my plan, but God had a bigger and better plan. You ever had that happen in your life? That you had a plan for something significant and it just didn't go your way at all and it did not go the way you would have wanted it. And when it's all said and done, you look back and go, holy smoke, that had to be God. I never would have asked for that, but it worked out so much better than what I was planning and hoping. I so live in the middle of that world. I mean, I think back to the things that have unfolded in my life in the last three or four years and I just see how God took things that I never would have planned and He let all of it work out so that His will is accomplished. I mean, I love pastoring and I love church planting. And it was a thrill to get to, to be the pastor who planted church on the Eastern Shore. The thing I never could understand, though, was, I mean, I had no experience in doing that. So I could not, I mean, I could write a book on all the mistakes that I made and we made in launching the church. I mean, it's a reminder that God is bigger than our mistakes. But I mean, so many things that looking back, I thought, good night, if I ever got a chance to do this again... I would know not to do this and definitely to do the way we tried it the second or third time. You know, it would just be so much easier. And so, you know, we work through all that stuff and a church gets planted and healthy stuff emerges. And I thought for so long in that, it's like, wow, it is such a shame. I've learned so many good lessons and kind of nothing to do with that. And I really have learned that I love church planting, but I can't imagine leaving where I am now. I love this church. I love where I am. And 
I just can't imagine leaving that. So it's just kind of crazy. It's like, I, I feel like I've got the gifts for this and I've learned some things about how to do this, but I don't know that I'll ever really be able to use that again. Well, hello. <laughs> well, I may not have just decided to do that on my own, but whenever you no longer pastor where you have been, because you don't get to, all of a sudden, those gifts and those things that you've learned get to be put into practice. And here's the wonderful thing in that. I don't know that I ever would have clued in to God saying, hey, guess what? I gave you those gifts and I taught you those lessons because you're not just going to plant one church in your lifetime. You're supposed to move on down the line and plant again. Now, I'm not suggesting by any means that God orchestrated every circumstance that made that happen. God's just so good. He took all that stuff and said, guess what? I'm going to take the church that was planted and make it stronger and better than it's ever been. And I'm going to plant a new healthy work. And you get to be a part of that. And the really cool thing is, not only is kingdom stuff accomplished, I'm happier than I've ever been. Because I know people from the outside could look at that and go, yeah, but isn't it a shame? You know, you planted this church and now it's large and it's, it's going strong and doing all this stuff. And you don't really have any direct connection to that. And that probably makes you sad. Can I just tell you, there is nobody on the Eastern Shore that has more joy in watching what's happening at church on the Eastern Shore than I do. I love those people. I love the work that God is doing there. And I am so thrilled about that. The only thing I'm more happy about is just being where I am and serving who I serve. And it's just, God is just good. And I identify with Paul when he's going, I didn't plan it this way. I didn't make it happen this way. But God is so good, and I'm full of joy, and I, I, I'm with Him in that. Were there terrible problems and tragedies? Yes, there were. And God is just so much bigger and better than that. He, that's true in my life, it was true in Paul's life, and it's true in your life. Sometimes His plan is just so different from ours, and good comes out of that. And so here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to pause, and I want you to think in your own life. Don't, don't make this any harder than it needs to be. This should come to mind quickly. What is the biggest problem? It may be a person. It may be a pain or pressure or whatever. What's the biggest problem that weighs on your mind right now? You got it? Is that crystallized for you? Okay, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes right now. Online, if you're watching. Bow your head and close your eyes with me. I want you, we're just going to take 30 seconds for you to do this in prayer. I want you to take that situation, that problem, and I want you to just hold that before the Lord and say, Lord, would you help me starting today to see this problem, to see this situation from your perspective? Would you help me to see the bigger picture? I just, I put this situation in your hands. Would you help me to see it with the eyes of faith? Lord, thank you that you're working these things out in line with your plan. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see what you're doing and to see things from your perspective. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'll just point out quickly two things that, that happen as fringe benefits when we face these kinds of problems with faith, things that Paul pointed out. First of all, it's a witness to unbelievers. He says, you know, for everyone here, including all the soldiers in the whole palace guard, know that I'm here in chains because of Christ. Every soldier, all these lost guys, they're being impacted in spite of the dilemma that Paul is in and as a result of it. But it also is an encouragement to believers around you. He says, because of my imprisonment, most of the believers 
have gained confidence and speak boldly uh, God's message without fear, you would think it might have the reverse effect that Christians would be like, ooh, did you see what happened to Paul? We better keep our mouths shut. The same thing could happen to us. But he's like, no, the, the opposite has happened. You know, people have seen me locked up and they've seen... I am so excited about what God's doing and God is using me that they're able to go, hey, if that's the worst that the world can do to us, that hadn't slowed him down at all. You know what? We're going to be that much more bold in sharing the gospel. So I just want to ask you, have you ever considered how many people are watching you when you're going through real problems, real pains, and realized it's not the good days of your life that the world is really learning much about Jesus and, and about what faith really means for you and the difference that it can make in your life. Because it's kind of like when your life is good, when you're healthy and your kids are healthy and you've got plenty of money and a good job and your roof doesn't leak, on those days, how much supernatural power or you know, how much God do you really need in your life? How much God can the world see in your life in those seasons? But when everything that hell has to unleash has been unleashed on you and your kids and your marriage and your business and your finances. When that happens to you, let me tell you, the world is dialed in, believers and unbelievers, to go, let's see what Tom Lanahan really is. Let's see what he's really made of. And you have an opportunity to be a tremendous encouragement, a tremendous witness, or for the world to go, see there? No different than me. Folded, gave up, Scared to death, angry, bitter, mad at God, mad at the world. It's in those seasons that you really impact other people the most. I, I continue to be caught off guard when people will say this, but it, it has ministered to me. To have, I actually had somebody do this in the last week, but several times along the way, I've had people, believers, say to me, I've watched you in the things that have unfolded in the last few years and know that people have talked about you and, and some unpleasant things have happened. But you haven't lost your joy and you haven't gotten bitter and I don't ever hear you being mad or saying things about other people. And that's encouraged me to watch you not stay hurt and be mad about that. I, this is an encouragement to me because along the way, I'm not thinking, well, I wonder how this is impacting other people. But it is a real joy to, and a reminder to just know, hey, for every one of us, we're watching each other. There are people watching us and they're either being encouraged or discouraged in their faith. And he's like, hey, people are more bold and they're sharing their faith as they're watching and going, wow, if he can go through that and life is still good and he's got joy and God's still using him, then I've got hope that God could still use me. And he does the same kind of thing with us all the time, doesn't he? It's a real encouragement to know that. So, first of all, seeing the bigger picture. Secondly, I can keep my joy no matter what if I never let others control my attitude. Isn't this a huge part of the equation? There are people in your life, just like there are people in mine, they will steal your goat. If, they will steal your pleasure if you let them. They'll get your goat if they, if they can. You got anybody like that in your life? I, I'm from a small town, so we use expressions like, you know, that person just gets my goat. I know an old preacher, here's what he would say to that. He said, you got people in your life who just love to get your goat. He said, stop telling them where it's tied. <laughs> they only get your goat by permission. And, and that's really kind of the way it works. Paul's like, there are plenty of people in my life trying to cause trouble. I just don't let them steal my joy. And he points out three different kinds of people. We'll call them competitors, comrades, and critics. He says, of the competitors, it's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry. That word rivalry... Um, it's the word eris in Greek. It means quarrelsome or those who like to argue. It's the people that are, they like conflict, controversy, and 
catfighting and just contentious kind of people. Anybody ever bump into somebody like that? Yeah, we all know those kind of people. So much of that's driven by jealousy. People who, they're just mad at the world and they're not happy, period. And if you've got joy and you're experiencing the blessing of God in your life, it's like they don't like that. And so they're always trying to stir something. It's like, oh, I've got plenty of those people in my life. But they're also the comrades that he said, you know, other people preach about Christ with pure motives and they preach because they love me. He's just saying positive people who are life-giving and they pour into me and they, they bring good in my life. And, and then we'll, we'll label the final critics. He said, others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. It's, at one level, it seems weird to consider this, but it's so easy to understand when you stop and think about it that <clears throat> there are people in Rome who are preaching the same Jesus, but who are trash-talking about Paul every chance that they get. God's using Paul. And people are, are coming to hear what Paul is saying. And there are other pastors who are threatened by that and who are just you know, trying to put it down. I mean, you know, he's a jailbird. I mean, God's not going to use somebody who's in prison. I mean, what did you hear the stuff he did to get locked up? He deserves to be locked up. He ought to shut his mouth. Somebody who's done what he's done, get locked up. I mean, you know how many years he's been locked up? You know how bad a crime you'd have to commit to do? I mean, just stuff that's not true. But it, it sort of has the sound of truth. I mean, he is in chains. It's like, must be something to this. So these guys are giving him fits, but they're preaching the gospel at the same time, their tool, that, that last group, their tool against Paul is gossip. By the way, that crazy makers, and that's just probably the best term for them. You got crazy makers in your life? They just make your life cray-cray. They just, when they come along, they just, they just sow chaos. And the best tool for doing that is to talk about you behind your back. I mean, to your face, it's like, oh, man, Glenn, love you, man. You're a good guy. Behind your back, man, I'm just going to trash you for all I'm worth. Just, you got people like that that just... Good to your face, stab you in the back whenever they get the opportunity to. Paul had those people. And they loved Jesus, preaching the same Jesus. You know what Paul had to say about all of that rolled together? His attitude was basically, I'm not going to worry about the ones that bring craziness in my life. I'm not going to worry about the ones who are all jealous and, and so in strife. And I'm going to enjoy the ones that are life-giving. I'm, life really is this simple when it comes to relationships. Some people are going to pour into you and your tank's going to be more full because you are around them and other people are vampires. They're going to suck the life out of you. They're going to bleed you dry, either to your face or behind your back. And at the end of the day, you just have to choose to spend more time with the life-giving people than you do from the bloodsuckers. A guy taught me that as a teenager and it has been a good lesson. He's like, I just figured it out. Some people like me and other people don't. I'm going to spend more time with the people who do. It doesn't mean you completely block the other people out, but you better figure out how to balance that out and be around more life-giving people. Now, I told you last week that uh, each week in the series, I'm just going to give you some little happiness hints. And I, I just will confess I slipped up and forgot to put this in your outline. There'll normally be a big HH in your outline for that, and it's not there, so you can just write this one in. Here's the happiness hint for the week. You do not need other people's approval to be happy, period. You don't need other people's approval. To live your life to be happy. You just don't have to have permission. I, I've been blown away at how many people have said of me, you don't have any business pastoring a church because you're divorced. I mean, just bold-faced. 
He does not deserve to get to pastor a church because he is divorced. Now, a lot more people have got the courage to say that behind my back than to my face, so I usually get that second hand. That's, that's how courageous most people are who are gossips. Is like, you know, but to my face, you know, can still say hi. I'm so glad to know that I don't need their permission to follow God's call on my life and be happy doing it. And oh, by the way, <laughs> you better walk in the same thing because they're talking about you too. The same people are talking about you too. In fact, I can tell you part of what they're saying about you. Because I've heard it repeated a bunch of times. They're saying you are fools. That you don't have any business going to a church with a divorced pastor and that you're in sin for doing that. I mean, I've heard that multiple times. They're talking about every one of you the same way they're talking about me. I've got good news for you. You don't need their permission to walk in the will of God and to have joy doing it. Thank you, Lord. That's good news to know. You, you and I can fall in the same trap of feeling like, because some of us are so wired to be people pleasers, it's like, I just don't want anybody to not like me. Guess what? You can spend the rest of your life trying to make them all love you. They won't. Some people just would hate Jesus. They just can't love anybody. Some people, they're not going to like you. They're going to like you even less if you're happy because they're unhappy and they want the rest of the world to be sour with them. Just decide. It's okay. Some people aren't going to like me. They're not going to like that I'm happy. They're not going to like how I serve Jesus. But you know what? Paul has the perfect response. Here was Paul's attitude. He said in verse 18, But it doesn't matter. Oh, yes. Say it with me. It doesn't matter. Again, it doesn't matter. Like you mean it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they think. It doesn't matter what they say. The important thing is that in every way, whether for right or wrong reasons, they're preaching about Christ. So I'm happy and I will continue to be happy. Okay, that was an odd thought thrown in the middle of that. It doesn't matter. The important thing is, in the middle of all this chaos, the important thing is what? <laughs> the important thing is, they're preaching about Jesus just like I am. Okay, here's the funny and ironic and very true twist in the middle of this. He's talking about Christians who were sowing chaos in his life. And I read this and I go, I so get you, Paul. I, I so understand because the crazy makers in my life, they're not lost and unchurched. Let me say they're not unchurched people because there are lost people in church. They are not people outside the church. People outside the church leave me alone. People outside the church are nice to me. It's people I have pastored who kill me behind my back. It's the truth. Christian people are the best people and some of them are the meanest people on the planet. And that was Paul's experience. He just said, listen, there are some great people. They are comrades. They love me. They love Jesus and they preach Jesus. But guess what? There are some backbiting, jealous, controversy making, cray cray makers in the world. And they preach Jesus too. Because the craziest people in the world they talk about Jesus too. And he said, here's the bottom line. It's not that they talk about me. I'm not going to worry about that. At the end of the day, Jesus is getting preached. He's getting preached by me. He's getting preached by them. And when they're not talking bad about me, they're talking good about Jesus. So guess what? I'm not going to worry what they say about me. I'm going to celebrate that in the middle of all that foolishness, I'm preaching Jesus and they're preaching Jesus. That sounds a little weird. Doesn't it? <laughs> you know, you kind of want him to go, well, let's go straighten those people. He's like, no, you know what? We're not going to worry about them. 
they're just other Christians preaching, preaching Jesus, and they're just a little hung up on hating on me too, so let's not worry about the hating on. That's always going to happen. Jesus is getting preached. It doesn't matter. And he goes on to say in verses 29 and 30, for you, now he's bringing them into the equation, and it's not just Paul facing opposition. He says, for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We're in this struggle together. Come on, church. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggles in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of this. Now, this is one of those passages that you could read it and go, oh, man, Paul must be one of those weirdos that, like, loves pain. It's like, you know, I, I have fun when people hurt me. You know, no, that's not what he's saying. But he understands and is teaching. You actually have a reason to rejoice when you're living for Jesus and people are giving you the devil for it. How can that be? He understood what Jesus taught Early on in the Sermon on the Mount, at the close of the Beatitudes, when he said in Matthew 5, 11, and 12, Jesus speaking here, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, if that's all he said, we'd be going, Really, Jesus? Blessed are you when people are trash-talking you, they're insulting you, they're trying to ruin your reputation. Blessed are you. If that's all he said, it'd be like, Yeah, great. That's a very blessed, blessed feeling there. I enjoy that a lot. But he didn't stop there. He explained it. He says, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. All right, now let's flesh that out. Jesus is saying, you live for me, and everybody isn't just going to applaud. Some people are going to be with you, some people are going to cheer for you, and some people are going to hate you. Some of them are going to say that they're on the same team to your face and behind your back. They're going to trash talk you. They're going to put you down. They will say things that really will hurt. And when they're insulting you and they're persecuting you, he said, you just go ahead and rejoice in this because here's the thing that you can know while that's going on. You are getting additional reward in heaven every time they say things about you. Every time they insult you, every time they put you down, your reward in heaven is increasing. It's like in your spiritual ear, you get to hear a little ching, 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 ching. Every time somebody's trash talking you as you're just living for him. It's like Paul's going, hey, I know these people are saying bad stuff when they're not preaching Jesus. They're preaching anti-Paul. Ching, ching, ching. It's like, come on. You know, I'd love for you to just enrich my bank account in heaven that much more of heavenly reward. So you want to trash talk me for serving the Lord? You want to trash talk me for following God's call to pastor? Go ahead. Trash me in the community. Cha-ching. Cha-ching. I mean, that's what he's saying. Great is your reward when people insult you on account of me. It sort of turns the whole equation around, doesn't it? It's like, honestly, I'm at the point you, you really... You can't hurt me anymore. I just, I don't know what else you're going to say that hadn't been said. I don't know what new lie you could make up. So if you just, if you want to be insulting, be insulting. Because Jesus said, as long as you just respond, respond in a Christ-like fashion, your reward is getting greater and greater. And so Paul is going, you know what? You're right there with me. Together we suffer for serving Christ. But you can celebrate that as the privilege of suffering for Christ which brings with it one benefit, and that is a greater reward in heaven. Well, that's kind of nice to know, isn't it? So Paul said, that doesn't really matter. Bottom line for Paul, I'm not going to let other people steal my happiness. 
third truth, the third habit. I can be happy no matter what if I always trust God to work things out. A bunch of us are wired to think that when things start to unravel and things get crazy and start falling apart, that it's always our job to fix it. Any fixers in the room besides me? Oh, everything that comes unglued. It's like, that must be my responsibility. If, if I didn't cause it, you know, I probably did and didn't know it, but you know, even if I didn't cause it, I'm supposed to be God's fixer in every situation. I've got to run fix everything. Oh, man, that is so stressful. It's hard to have any joy when you're fixing everything in the world. It's also hard to let God be God when we've got to fix everything that ultimately was God's in the first place. When life gets crazy and things unravel, you really are, are given sort of two options. You can decide it's all on you, and so we panic or freak out or get stressed out. You can panic or you can pray. In prayer, we're basically going, okay, God, you see what's going on here. What do you want to do? And how do you want me to be, be involved in what you're doing? One of those is all about us, and the other one's all about God. One of them creates all kinds of stress and unhappiness, and the other one lets us stay in a really safe place where we don't lose our peace, we don't lose our, our joy. Can you trust God to work things out when problems hit? Well, Paul said this in verse 19. I will continue to rejoice. I will. That's a key phrase. Circle that. I will. It's a reminder that to rejoice is an act of the will. It's a choice to rejoice. I will continue to rejoice for I know. Circle I know. That's the declaration of confidence. That's faith talking. I know that as you pray for me and the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. Bottom line for Paul was really simple. God's got this. That's what he's saying. Hey, I will continue to rejoice because I know God's going to work this out. Okay, for a dude that's been in prison for four years, how do you have that kind of confidence? He does not have an attorney who's running to Caesar, who's coming back and going, hey, I think we've got your court date ironed out. I think we've got some evidence lined up here in your favor. He didn't do anything in the first place. I mean, there's nobody building a case for him. It's like, does anybody even remember he's still locked up? How does he possibly have this kind of confidence to go, oh, listen, I know. My deliverance, it is coming. I am so sure of that. Okay, Paul, how are you so sure? Four years. That's a long time. Well, we know of at least three things that gave him that kind of confidence. One, he had been looking at this whole thing long enough. We can hear clearly he had gotten the big picture that we talked about. He had gotten God's perspective. I can see, man, God is working out his plan. So he had God's big picture perspective. But beyond that, he said... I know you're praying. And I know your prayers have made a difference. I know God would not ignore how long and fervently you've been praying with me and for me. So I know things are about to happen. Oh yeah, and beyond that, the Spirit of Jesus Christ is at work in me and He is helping me, is what He says. doesn't say what the Holy Spirit's doing, but it's just this wonderful picture of I know that I couldn't orchestrate my own deliverance but God is so involved in this thing, it's going to work out. And we may look at that and go, well, great. I mean, it's the Apostle Paul. He's the greatest missionary in the history of the entire planet. Of course, it's going to work out for him. I don't have the same confidence for me. Here's the deal. The same spirit that lived in Jesus lives in you and me. And that same spirit that helps Jesus helps you and me. 
And when we pray, we're praying to the same God who helped fall. And he's like, I just know. I've got this confidence. It's going to lead to my deliverance. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? Everybody good with that? Paul's going to get delivered. Woo, woo. It's all, that's all great. We're all for deliverance. He goes on to say in verse 20, it is my eager expectation. Man, do you hear anything but just joy and positive thing? It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now there's a there's a bit of a surprising line in that. It's all this confidence, and I know that I'll be delivered. But then he adds this unusual thought in there. I know I'm going to be delivered. But he's just saying, you know what? I'm not going to put God in a box to define what my deliverance looks like. Deliverance may be that he sets me free from this whole earthly experience. And I just get freed up from a body that's gotten old and that he takes me out of the lockup to just go be with him, and I get the ultimate reward, or it may be that he turns me loose. But I, I know in my spirit I'm not going to sit here and rot for the next 20 or 30 years chained up. I'm just not sure whether my deliverance is going to heaven or if my deliverance is going to be just having these chains taken off and living as a free man again. There's a little bit of an edge to that for us, isn't there? Because it's like, you know... When my problem is sickness, I want to know that my deliverance is physical healing of this body, right? And Paul had a faith that said, you know, God is good. God is good whether he does what he's going to do in the flesh or if his deliverance is something that I'm going to experience by him taking me home. But I'm going to declare that God is good and I'm going to see that God had a purpose either way in that. But I know... This is going to lead to my deliverance. And it's not like he's going, well, you know, I may get free or I may die. No, he's going, I have this eager expectation and hope. Either way, I mean, God's got a purpose in it. And the church is going to be built up. The world's going to be impacted. And I'm going to, I'm going to wind up better off either way. And then the final thing, the fourth truth there. <clears throat> I, can, I can continue to be happy no matter what. If I stay focused on my purpose and not on my problem. And when I say my purpose, I'm not talking about a purpose that I get to dream up and say, this is what I want to live for. I'm talking about God's purpose for your life and for mine. Paul, at this point, is a pretty old man. He has a lot of miles on him by now. He has, I mean, when you read one of the summaries of, of his life where he talks about all these men, how many times he's been beaten, I mean, all the times he's been imprisoned and shipwrecked and stoned and all of these things. This guy's got the scars. He, he, he's physically battered and worn down. And going home to a heavenly home is looking better and better to Paul. And at this point, Paul's been robbed of a lot. He's been robbed of his freedom. He's been robbed of the ability to go out and be with friends. He's been robbed of the ability to travel and do church planting, which is his passion. He's been robbed of all privacy. He's had a lot taken away from him. But Paul has discovered that there are a few things that they could not take from him. They could not take from him the relationship that he has with Christ. They could not rob him of his purpose in life and God's call on his life. 
And they could not rob him of freedom to choose how he would respond to all of these really difficult circumstances. I'm reminded when I read this part of, of Victor Frankl and of his story. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with him. I was first exposed to him when I was uh, in college and in psychology. But his, his best-known work is the book Man's Search for Meaning. And in that, Frankl uh, details some of his experiences as a Jew who endured the concentration camps during World War II and just all the horrors that took place there. And it's, it's the stuff that we're familiar with. We, we probably need to be reminded from time to time of just the horrors of what they endured. But he went through what so many other millions of Jews went through he, as he was spent all this time in a concentration camp. He witnessed many of his childhood friends imprisoned with him, carried away to the gas chambers, put into the ovens, murdered, buried in mass graves. He witnessed his own family members go through the same thing, snatched from him and executed. No crimes committed. He had his own clothes taken from him, everything, all the way down to his wedding ring, the one last remember, uh, reminder of the, the woman that he loved had that taken from him. It was as if they robbed him of everything that you could take from a man, robbed him of any sense of, of privacy or, or human dignity. And he said that one day as he stood there, frail, emaciated, completely naked, family and friends gone and dead, and he's being forced to stand there naked before the Gestapo. He said it was that day standing there that the realization dawned upon him. They've taken all of those things away, but there are some things that they cannot take from me. And they cannot rob me of the freedom to choose how I'll respond to these hurts and to this adversity. No matter what you do, you can't rob me of the freedom to choose how I'll respond. You can try to make me afraid, you can try to break me. You can try to make me angry and bitter. But you cannot rob me of the freedom to choose how I'll respond. I can become bitter or I can become better. And you don't get to determine which one it's going to be. Victor Frankl learned the same thing that Paul learned. Life can get really hard. People can be really cruel. But ultimately it's not up to people and it's not up to the world to decide what that will do to you. It is up to you. And Paul determined that in the face of all that was being done to him, that he would, instead of focusing on the problems and the pains, that he would focus on God's purpose for his life. Here's what he said in verses 22 and following. As he's talking about the thought of living and dying, and he says, But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live, knowing this, that I am convinced that I will remain alive so that I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. I can remember very well at, a, at younger ages and different stages of life reading this passage and the longer portion here and really being kind of troubled like, 
Paul, you know, what's the deal? Have you just kind of given up on life? All this talk about, you know, it would be better for me to die. And it's like, this guy needs some Prozac or something. I mean, what's his deal? Is all this talk about death and it'd just be better to be with Jesus. And I read that like, man, the guy's just really getting worn down and weak. I will tell you, the older that I've gotten, the more that I really understand and identify with this passage. And it's not because I'm living in despair or anything. This guy's full of joy, but he's just going, I really am torn. It's just like... I could go either way and be so happy. I could continue to live and, and do what God's called me to do. I could just go home and be with Jesus, and that sounds really good, too. And I, I don't know. Some of it's just the passing of time. Some of it's getting older. Maybe some of it's getting more mature. Some of it's the miles. Some of it is the roughness of life that you just come to a place of going, wow, heaven really does look better. And really, I, I've had some times, a lot, a lot of times in the last three years, where I have come to really understand what Paul was saying. And, and it's not at all that I've ever thought about harming myself or anything. I just had a lot of days where I thought, hey, the choice, if I got to choose today between heaven and earth, I'd absolutely take heaven right now. Just life is just hard. God is good and heaven is sweet. And I just take heaven today over earth. I, I, I get it now. Paul wasn't like in despair. He's just more in touch with just the reality of this is tough. And it's not going to be nearly this tough in heaven. And I... I've had a good life, and I'm ready for Jesus. I, I get more and more of that. But you know what Paul said? As much as heaven looks good, he said, I, I know this. I'm not going to heaven now. It is just not time. Because for me to be here means that I get to live out the calling that God's placed on my life. And that calling is about you. He said, I know I am here for your encouragement and for you to grow and to experience the joy that God has for you. And so I know that's what God has. I, I'm going to continue to sow into you. And yeah, I'm still chained up here, but I just know I'm going to continue on. God just isn't done with me yet. I'm going to fulfill God's purposes for my life. Here's my question for you. What's God's purpose for your life? We're talking about how to find lasting happiness in life. I know this. You won't have lasting joy, contentment, and happiness if you haven't connected with God's purpose for your life. And this has little or nothing to do with your job. I don't care what you do for a living or if you work outside the home. It doesn't have anything to do with that. What is God's purpose for your life? And I know, I mean, there are people listening online, people in the room today who are going, that's my problem. I don't have any idea what God's purpose for my life is. Let me say, sometimes we way overcomplicate this. And you'll hear people saying goofy stuff. It's like, I'm going to take a year off from life and go backpack through Europe and try and find myself and my purpose in life. You don't need to backpack through Europe or you know, swim with the sharks to find your purpose in life. God's purposes are not that hard to figure out. They are clearly spelled out in Scripture. I mean, like if you want a real precise uh, explanation of God's purposes, read what Jesus said in Luke 4, 18 and 19 when He's spelling out the Messianic Declaration back from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 when He says... You know, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor to bind up the brokenhearted. That whole passage where He spells out all the things that He's going to do. That I've come for the poor. I've come for those in bondage. I've come for those who are blind. I mean, throughout the Scriptures, what we find is that the kingdom of God is ushering into the world the abundance of God, the provision, the justice, the goodness of God into the lives of people who are broken, hungry, needy, sick, impoverished. You want to know what God's purposes are? They haven't changed. It's to care for the poor. It's to feed the hungry. It's to bring good news to those who are lost. It's to help people who are in bondage get free. 
It's to help people who are sick get well. It is to care for the orphan and the widow and the prisoner. That's what the kingdom of God has always been about. So you finding your place in caring for those who are in need. It may be in discipling the next generation, but it's not that complicated. There are very tangible ways for every single one of us to connect with God's purposes. And really, a lot of where we'll get tripped up is it's like, I've got to find that thing that's just my thing. Look, here's the deal. It never was about you. It never was about me. We get so hung up on, what is God's purpose for my life? Well, there's the problem. The question is the problem. It's all about my life. No, the question needs to be about what's, what are God's purposes. God's purposes are well-defined. They're not complex. They're really easy. They're like on the surface. You don't have to dig around to find them in the Scriptures. Once you've discovered God, God's purposes, get involved in that. You bring justice where there's injustice. You feed the hungry. You care for the sick. You reach out to people here or in other places in the world who are in need, and you meet those needs in Jesus' name. You declare the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done, and you meet tangible needs along the way. And I'll guarantee you, you found God's purposes for your life. It's not about your life. It's about the kingdom. It's about His heart to reach and touch the world. You want to find real happiness? Here's the big trick. This is the big thing that that trips most people up. This is why most people in life, in the course of their lifetimes, will not find lasting happiness. People believe that happiness is about self-gratification. That if I do things that are self-gratifying, I'll be happy for longer. In other words, if I accumulate more of the things or the experiences that make me happy while I'm doing that or while I have that, if I get more and more of that because it made me happy when I did that, I'll have more and more happiness. And it never works. It never works that way. But we instinctively believe that. You, do you know what I'm talking about? It's like for the, the mindset that says, man, when I think about being happy, I just think about shopping. Cause I love to shop. You know, whatever. You know, buying clothes or having a new car. That just makes me so happy. So... If I really, if I had more money and I could buy more, I would be happier. And it never works. Or the person who's like, you know when I'm really happy? is when I'm having sex. Because I can't think of anything that feels better than sex. And so, though they never say it out loud, they build their life around sexual experiences and lots of relationships. And it's like, if I could just get in the right relationship, if I could just find the hot person who was you know, just ready to go to bed all the time, I'd be happy with that. And it never works. Because the more people they're with, the less happy they are. And the more they feel like they've become a diminished person because they've left a little bit of themselves with every relationship they've been involved in. The person who's like, well, I know when I really just feel the best is when I'm working and I'm achieving and I'm, I'm recognized and I'm successful and I'm climbing the ladder and I just, man, I feel special when I do that. And the person who does that never finds lasting happiness in that. There's always another rung of the ladder to get up to and there's always somebody above them. And the, here's the real just awful, awful surprise is the place where the suicide rate is the highest is the top rung of the ladder. When the person who has spent all of their life climbing that ladder and they achieve success and there is no rung left to achieve beyond where they are and they look around and realize it was empty. It was meaningless and despair sets in. 
All of these things that are supposed to bring so much self-gratification, we find out in the accumulation of more stuff, there's just a greater desire for stuff. And, and now there's stress over taking care of the stuff that we have and not losing any of it. God gave us the picture of this in Solomon. He said he let him have more stuff than anybody on the planet. He let him be smarter than anybody on the planet. He let him have more success than anybody in his lifetime. The wealthiest man alive and he had more women than anybody we could imagine. He had a thousand of them. He had more sex than he could keep up with. And his commentary on it all, it was vanity. It was like chasing after the wind. Anybody tried to catch the wind lately? You can't do it. It's just like... How do you, how do you catch the wind? You can't. It's elusive. It can't be done. He said finding happiness in those things doesn't work because here's the trap of life. Thinking that pursuing more self-gratification is going to give you happiness is an empty hole. It's not about self-gratification. It's about self-sacrifice. And it's so counterintuitive. It's like self-sacrifice. Yes, this is a primary key to lasting happiness. You weren't designed for the accumulation of stuff. You weren't designed for gratification through success. You weren't designed for gratification through sex with all kinds of partners. None of those things were what you were designed for. You were designed to be like your Creator who ultimately expressed Himself as one who loves and gives and the greatest expression of His character was in self-sacrifice. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life. And on the surface of that, we look at that and go, for real? I mean, that's like the best pathway to happiness you can think of? I'll guarantee you it is. Because when you find yourself connected with the great purposes of God, and you begin to pour yourself, your energy, your love, your resources into people who are in need, and you see them connecting with God, you see them coming alive, you see them finally experiencing real joy, real peace, real healing. Holy smoke! Words can't express the lasting sense of just overwhelming joy that wells up inside of you as now... Whatever it's cost you, it doesn't matter because your life has made a difference. The world is different. People are different because you live. Paul had experienced that. That was his life. And so he said, I'm telling you, it's so tempting to go home and be with Jesus. To die would be such a gain for me. But to live, to live, what would that be for me? It's, I'll just tell you, to me, to live, it's just, it's just Christ. It's just Jesus and whatever He wants. It's just being Jesus to others. It's Jesus' purposes. It's living for Him. It's giving my life for others. To live, it's just, it's just Christ, even though to die would be gain. So here's the bottom line. At the end of your outline, there's one simple statement with the key word missing. And it comes from what Paul said. For to me, to live is Christ. How do you finish the sentence? For me to live is blank. Be honest. Don't put down what you'd like for it to be, what you'd like for it to say. For me to live is it's what? It's sports. It's Alabama football. It's the next game. 
for me to live is or for me to live is work. It's my career. For me to live is my family. To have a mate. To have kids grow up and do well and who love me. For me to live is entertainment. For me to live is retirement. Right now I'm just living for the day that I can retire and do what I want to do. What's the rest of the sentence for you? For me to live is what? Because I'll tell you this. How you finish that sentence will in large part determine how happy the rest of your life is. How truly satisfying and fulfilling it is. Paul said, for me to live, it's just Christ. Who He is, what He's doing, and what He's got planned. Whether it's a long life, a short life, just living for Him to make a difference in the lives of others. Would you join me as we turn to the Lord together in prayer? Lord, we have found ourselves at different times living for so many different things. And so many of them have been so empty in the end. Would you forgive us for the times when we've chased our own desires and we've chased the world? And would you stir up in us a true true hunger and thirst to chase after you so that we could truly say, for me to live is Christ. Lord, we want to be a people who experience lasting happiness and joy, but we really don't want to make that the aim of our lives. We want our aim to be to live for you, to live pleasing to you, and to, to live our lives in a way that would honor you by how we invest in the lives of others. I pray that you would help us to discover your purpose for our lives, that we would live in a way that pleases you. I pray that today you give us eyes to see the bigger picture. For some of us today have been so overwhelmed by pain and problems and pressures, people who are hurting us, I pray that today you would help us to see that from a bigger perspective and to trust you that you're working out your plan in our lives. It may be that today you need for the first time to trust Christ, to let Him be the center of your life. And There's not some magic formula to do that. It is a simple step of faith. And if you'd like to enter into a relationship, would you just from your heart pray a simple prayer like this? Lord Jesus, I need you. I need you in the center of my life, leading me, speaking to me, helping me be the person you've designed me to be. I know you died for me, and I'm asking you today to forgive my sins, to wipe the slate clean. Would you give me a new direction and a sense of hope and joy to go with that? For some of us who've already trusted Christ, but who still are struggling today, would you just pray a simple prayer? Lord Jesus, would you help me today to see you ahead of my problems? Would you help me to trust you to work out your plan in my life? Would you help me to live for your purposes? Or we trust you that you're good and that your plans will bring good in our lives and glory to you. Would you give us faith to believe you and courage to follow you wholeheartedly? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.